You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Hi, thanks for joining us on Absolute AI, conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I'm speaking with Tim Huckabee. Tim is an industry luminary focused on AI, computer vision, machine learning, ARMR, data visualization, and edge computing. Tim has over 35 years of technology experience, including 25 years with Microsoft, where he worked on some famous and not so famous Microsoft server products and learned how to build scalable enterprise software. He founded Internology in 1999 and Actus Interactive Software in 2011, which became Visibility in 2015. Now he's an AI consultant for Inadata. Tim is an accomplished keynote speaker and writer and wrote three books and hundreds of articles on topics ranging from emerging experiences in artificial intelligence, computer vision, voice recognition, and futuristic interfaces. I'm so excited for our conversation. Welcome to Absolute AI, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me, Melody. Thanks for coming on the show. I want to dive right in. You've had a very long and impressive career, and I'd love to start by hearing about your tenure at Microsoft and how working there informed the rest of your career. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've had a long career. That The gray hair is uh, an indicator of that. So I uh, Microsoft is where I learned how real enterprise software was built. I was a young man, probably your age, when I when I joined uh, uh, Microsoft and Building Twenty Five. It's funny; I just came from a meeting in downtown San Diego with a bunch of those old Microsoft people, so they're in my head now. Um, and it was a great experience. Uh, it's, it's a different company now. That's back in the Bill Gates days when it was very combative and controversial mm. and exciting and you know we were working 18 hour days i was on the server side uh, windows nt if your listeners even remember what that os that uh, 65 million lines of code was um yeah and it kind of launched my career but um um and i worked on the first internet server product i, wor I worked on the first commerce server product a lot of the the, the staging and internet tools products my me and my team built some of which I, I heard are still used today uh but it's at redmond washington and um you know my my lovely bride and i just celebrated 33 years of wow. marriage and at the time at the time she said there's no way in hell i am moving to Seattle. <laughs> it's too rainy right <laughs> <laughs> well back then it was you know it's funny you say that because climate change has totally yeah. changed redmond washington yeah. they have so many sunny days now mm. i i worked there for a good what was it it was like 13 or 14 months and i did not see mount rainier even though my office looked at mm. it you know it literally went it it didn't rain three days in that first <sighs> year and when it didn't rain, it snowed. Oh, no. It literally rained every day. But, uh, you know, so what else do you do, right? You, you work, and we were, at, you know, 2,500 people on a software team. If you can imagine that, 
You know, back in those days, we used to build software with thousands of people. Nowadays, what you can do with four to six people and the tools and the plumbing, the platform that we have, um, totally different days. But yeah, it, it launched my career and, it, and um, I was just infatuated with application mm. development at the time. So I founded that company, Internology. I came back to San Diego. I had a great relationship with the local Microsoft folks. Um, it, it, if you want me to segue into what I did after Microsoft, it, it, I just told this story um, just literally an hour ago. It doesn't take a lot of money to start a service company. Hmm. You know, and that's what we were. We built custom software. This is your company that was Internology that you founded in 1999? That's, okay. that's right. I founded that. So I worked at Microsoft 97, 98, 99. And um, I came back and founded Internology with another great guy um, who, who later, and is still at Microsoft, left for, for Microsoft. But, you know, it, what it takes or what it took is people and a customer. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to have, because I had been working with them and for them for so long in a consulting capacity, uh, one of the Fortune 50, uh, the the giant insurance company that has the whale commercials. And, uh, and um, you know, everyone told me that's back back in the, the big internet boom. And everyone told me, oh, you won't be able to hire anybody. Every All programmers overpay, blah, blah, blah. But I had worked with a lot of engineers here in Southern California for a long time. And they all came and uh, yeah, we had a fun time, a bunch of engineers trying to run a business, which is challenging. You know, we didn't get smart till later and hire business people. Um, But yeah, it was, you know, we took off running and, and that company's famous in some circles for just cutting edge software, you know, from augmented reality to computer vision to the, the thing you see on CNN, the, the, the map of the U.S., the magic wall, to, and everything in between. We did a lot of high-profile stuff, save cancer research. Uh, we diagnosed COVID through computer vision, right? You know, that was, that was over two years ago when it first started going down. So, yeah, it was a fun ride. Um, I, I just got out of that company recently. Or it's Time flies, uh, you know, four months ago. Wow. Um, so yeah, that was fun. Yeah. I definitely want to dive into some of those use cases. But before we get there, you mentioned applications. And I read somewhere that you were deemed the pioneer of the smart client revolution, <laughs> which when you predicted locally installed native application dominance, so like apps on smartphones, things like that. And at the time, there was this trend towards web applications. So I want to know what you were able to see that others were missing. Yeah, just understand, Melody, that um, I never shy away from a prediction <laughs> or, a, or a technical discussion. And to my discredit, and remember, I told you I worked on the first internet server at, at Microsoft. And when that HTML thing came around building 25, and this is back when Bill Gates wrote that famous email, like, we're behind on the internet, we, get, we need to turn the company around, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we got, you know, we all got that email, and, and I looked at my boss, and he looked at me, and I, and I said, are we allowed to say bad words on your podcast? I said, I looked at that <laughs> HTML form submit. Get ready for your beep button. Um, I looked at the HTML form submit. And I, I don't know if you've ever looked at pure HTML, mm-hmm. but uh, I looked at that post, which did that post command. I'm like, this is, this isn't programming. 
who would do this? <laughs> you know, because we were back then we had and who would who would run this over TCPIP, which is a disconnected, you know, stateless program? Who would do this? And because we had beautiful binary protocol protocols and you know, we we were building Win32 applications. Like, why would you do this? And then I made the the infamous prediction that the internet would die under its own um, weight, under its own bandwidth <laughs> restrictions, because it's such an inefficient protocol. Huh. You know, if you understood ban- binary protocols, you're like, God, it's, it's lightning quick and and efficient. Of course, they weren't free. So, so the the one thing I didn't realize is number one, free would push a company like Cisco to build this amazing router thing. Mm-hmm. So they turned something that was completely broken into something that could mm-hmm. work. And then it, cut to the chase. If I call you on my cell phone, you know, it probably takes two router hops from here in Carlsbad, California to, to where you are. It's not really a router, but it's the same concept. But if I was to go www.melody.com, I, I would make... 35, 50, 75 router hops. I mean, the internet is completely inefficient. Well, I didn't know that that Cisco would make a bad thing worse by inventing inventing this amazing 2550 router. So being that said, you know, now I'm stuck in this stuff and building the software for with a bunch of brilliant people at Microsoft. You know, I ultimately I said, uh, well, you know, we're we're just so limited in what we can do in in a web browser, realize these are the early 2000s, you know, and and I just, it just seems to me like if these phones are really going to be as powerful as they're predicting and that the battery manufacturer people can keep up with the, you know, Intel CPU Mm -hmm. type people on the phone, then we're going to be right. We're not going to be writing web apps on the phone. This whole this whole craze about the App Store and iPhone and 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 the you know and Android, you know, we're going to be writing essentially Win thirty twos. You know, so that's what happened, yeah. and that's when that that who was that? Some guy from the press said, and I used to talk about it all the time. You know, we we need to, yeah, you know, we the web is important, but we need to sharpen our Win thirty two skills. You know, for because we're going to build these compiled native apps on the phone, because that's the only way to do mm-hmm. it. There's just not enough power, you know, to wrap these web technologies. It would just be too slow. Cut to today, that prediction is is no longer mm-hmm. valid because the battery companies figured it out. Right, my my iPhone probably could last if I don't talk on my iPhone. It could probably last two or three days without running out of battery. Back in the old days, you were lucky to make six hours, especially if you talked on your phone. And then these companies like Qualcomm and Intel and AMD made these amazing CPUs where you really could use high-end programming languages and wrapped platforms. So now cut to today, almost every web app is not native. It's too hard. You know, they're, they're wrapped in web technology. So, you know, I may have made this bold prediction that was right 
15 right. years ago, but it's totally yeah. wrong today. It's totally incorrect today. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. There's there's that stuff. Well, uh, yeah, I think history always does that to people, right? Like I was talking about this with a previous guest about being on the bleeding edge versus the cutting edge. And, uh, you know, it depends on what kind of company you're building and what you're trying to do, where, where you want to be kind of peeking over the edge into into the future. And um, anyway, it was definitely right on at the time. I want to bring that to to currently because we, you know, we were talking about uh, early internet and some of that work, but you have really come into your own in the AI world, which is, of course, the topic of this podcast. Mm. So I, I want to talk about your current technology focus and you know, start to get into some of those fun predictions for for AI. Okay, well, it's actually a good segue because the reason you know that I have this almost ten year long infatuation with computer vision, which is just a a small part of artificial intelligence, is because of being able to do that compute on the mm-hmm. edge, meaning the compute yeah. edge. We have these beautiful cloud platform platforms, essentially two, but you could argue three. Um, and all the AI, basically, in those, you know, AWS and in Azure, it's 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 cloud tech. So if you think if you think through computer vision, which is simply software interpreting what it sees in a in an image, right? And and the paradigm is, you know, you set your application sends a heavyweight picture, like a ten meg picture up to the cloud, it gets processed, the answer comes down. Well, that doesn't work. That's not real time. Um, That's not even close to real time. And in in low latency areas, and in a lot of places, honestly, where you need, especially the security and and stuff that we've done, where you're looking for the bad guy or you're looking for stolen children and stuff like that. I mean, you need as close to real time as possible. It's just not realistic Mm -hmm in some little town in South, Af- South Africa to, to send a 10 meg picture up to the cloud to get processed. So, so uh, I'm all, I got, we're coming back to my Win32 roots and, and uh, I happened to stumble bass backwards into um, just a brilliant engineer at Intel. And we were, we were manning the Intel booth at this big, you know, technology show in New York or something like that. And we were, you know, bitching and complaining about, oh, God, the bandwidth here is terrible. Our demos are broken, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, you know what, Tim? We have this Skunk Works project here at Intel, and um, you, re- you really need to look at it because we're, we're going to move the compute out of the cloud, and we're going to move it down to the CPU. So this whole thing here that we're doing that's dying it, it goes away with this. And we're going to take this tech that we own and this tech that we built and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So that was the beginning of a product called Intel OpenVINO, which is open source computer vision that runs at the compute edge. So is that what some people refer to as on-device AI then? Like the... Yeah. Or on, okay. Sure. Cool. Sure. Okay. And if you, you know, there's a compute edge of the, the CPU at the computer, but now you can move the CPU into cameras themselves. Mm. So that would be like on what you're talking about on device. Yeah. But ultimately the crunching that the, the machine learning, the trained algorithm is running locally on the CPU. And uh, after, after, you know, we talked about this, I was on the Intel um, Chandler campus, like two weeks later, I was kind of excited. And it was a room of 
like 30 people and they're giving me the tech briefing on this. And I'm like, this is too good to be true. <laughs> you know, you know I, I, what, what's the catch here? I thought, you know, they're going to have this enormously expensive licensing thing with it. And said, no, no, it's open source. I'm like, so why are you guys doing this? <laughs> you know, why, why is it, why isn't Microsoft, you know, taking uh, Windows ML and, and which is their, you know, local processing edge base machine learning technology and running with it. And he goes, well, our theory is if we could get developers to adopt this, we are so tight to the metal, meaning Intel Open Vino runs better on the version of CPU you have. Mm. It, it's tied to the CPU. And it actually runs better on ge the generation of the proc than it does on the version. So for instance, if you have an Intel i5 Gen 13 processor, the, the algorithms are going to run better, faster, you know, with more scale on that than an i7 in an older generation. So our theory is that this is going to become so popular that people will upgrade their computers because it's mm. so good. And guess what? They were right. The, cut to today, uh, there still isn't a legit competitor for that. And it has everything to do with Intel. I mean, AMD could come up and, and do the same thing mm -hmm. technically if they wanted to, if that was their strategy. But there, there really isn't another edge-based compute platform. So, uh, you know, now it's gone from facial recognition and looking for bad guys to, hey, I could recognize Cokes and Pepsis, Pepsis in retail. Oh, and mm. by the way, I can identify COVID in an x-ray. Oh, by the way, I can, you know, identify cancer in a, in a um, or, or I can make a bird app and point my phone at a bird and it, you know, tells me what type of bird it is, right? So that whole Moore's Law thing, I don't know if you remember yeah. Moore's Law from school. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gordon Moore, I'll refresh your audience, is, <laughs> is one of the founders of Intel. He made this prediction which was our, our um, we could cram twice as many circuits on a circuit board every year. It later changed it to two years. What that equates to is our CPU is getting powerful, more powerful. Right. So we're on this collision course. Moore's Law has continued to execute. It's so uncanny. It's continued to execute for almost 60 years, I think. It's somewhere between 50 and 60 years. And in 2025... The Intel CPU, if Moore's Law continues for three more years, which there's no indication that it won't, our computers can compute at the speed of the human brain. Now, get your arms around that. That doesn't mean that the robots are taking over, the machines are, you know, <laughs> sentient beings. What it does mean, though, is that some of the more menial um, heavyweight execution tasks are going to be accomplished a lot more effectively. Now, mm. realize we don't have battery technology that could keep up with the CPU like that. We're just assuming that the battery people will keep up, keep up in the power. There's a tremendous drain of power on a CPU that powerful. Right. To calculate as at the, and we're talking, it's the, the one beyond trillions of executions per second, the next one up. It's just ridiculous speed. Yeah. So what do you do with that type of power? Well, in computer vision, technically you could kind of make a blind man see. If a blind man was wearing uh, glasses that had the CPU in it that was telling him or her what is in front of him. 
Mm-hmm. That, that means the recognition of hundreds of millions of objects. So to forget about the user interface, you know, that's too much information. Yeah. And, and then you really appreciate the, you know, the, the relationship between your eyes, which are still, there's parts of the human eye that people don't understand. It's like one of the parts of the body. People just can't understand it. But the relationship between your eyes and the way you process what you see, I'm looking out the window here mm-hmm. and I'm seeing trees across the street and somebody walking their dog. And, you know, that, that interface is beyond what software could do. So you might be able to create the glasses and it could recognize everything. But to get that information into that guy's brain, mm-hmm. you know, you're missing that connection. You know, you, you, it, the artificial intelligence involved in that solution would be significant because yeah. you'd... You'd have to describe what is important. Right. Which your brain is doing all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. And the vision system. Yeah. Like, I'm also looking at the side of our house. That's not interesting. It's not interesting that the the roof is 10 feet above me. Right. right? But people walking their dog, that's fairly interesting. And that's what a blind person would want to know or a car that just drove by, you know? Mm. So anyways... I could talk about this stuff forever. That, I don't want to bore you. No, that <laughs> but that's my thing. Yeah, I love computer vision. The meeting I just came from is about, you know, what are we going to do in the next ten years in computer vision? Are we going to solve the world? Or are we going to ruin it? And that's that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the thing about artificial intelligence is, it's kind of like nuclear power. You know, it, it, nuclear power produced the most awful weapon in the history of mankind, but it also produced the microwave oven. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and, yep. and artificial intelligence is the same thing. You know, a 12 year old can get tools for free off the internet and do some really bad things, especially in terms of privacy. You know, you, it, it, it's just, and, and now quantum computing's coming. And it's the same thing. It, quantum computing could save the world and destroy it at the same time. It's so powerful. But. That, that's the type of stuff I love. And, and when I get on stage, that's the stuff, type of stuff we talk about. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. Okay, you you brought up so many things that I want to dive Sorry. deeper into. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay, so so you were talking about um, Moore's law, this exponential um, uh, processing power that I, I can't even believe. You said twenty twenty five, and I'm like, oh, I I yeah. am starting to <laughs> almost make plans. That seems like close at this point. Um, it is. But what what are some of the what are some of the stumbling blocks? So like the, the, the power is there. Um, one of the things that another guest brought up is, um, and you, you made an allusion to it with the, with a battery, but to, to, um, fuel that type of processing power, um, you know, takes a, a, an enormous amount of energy, physical energy, fossil fuels or electricity or what, you know, whatever it is. Um, what are what are some of those other stumbling blocks? There's only one, you know. And the battery isn't the problem, um, really. It's in in you know th- this is the kind of conversations I'm having now. Um, data, data is the problem. 
You know, we, we have so many brilliant people around the world, both professionally and in education, working on amazing machine learning algorithms. That's not our problem. Um, the compute I just talked about, that's not our problem. Compute's going like this. The problem is, let me take, take one of the things I mentioned, um, birds. I think I mentioned birds. If you wanted mm -hmm. to build an application, and there is a brilliant application put out by um, Cornell University called Merlin that, that does Merlin. do this. Um, and I'll tell you how they pulled it off too. But, but, but I cannot tell you, working in a custom software company for so long, I cannot tell you how many times people came to me with a great idea. And I say, totally agree. Great idea. <laughs> we could save lives with this. Now, where are you going to get the data from? And they look at me like, well, you guys won't do that? Like, no, I, I, we can't aggregate two million pictures of every species of bird on the planet. We, hmm. That's not us. Oh, and by the way, once you get your hands on those pictures, which is very challenging, then you've got to manually draw the box around the bird's face and then around the bird's body so that it's, that data is curated or prepared for machine learning. And, and that's actually how I stumbled into you guys. You know, I cannot tell you how many times I told these people, great idea, and they, but we have the money. It's, it's, you don't understand. It's not a programming thing. It's not a technology thing. If you want to solve brain cancer, you need to give us, we'll find the algorithm or we'll build it, mm -hmm. but you need to find 10 gazillion pictures of this brain cancer from, from every which way and angle and then we'll do the machine learning on it, and then you can recognize it. Well, we can't do that because HIPAA would restrict us from getting those. Mm -hmm. You're exactly. Yeah. There's the problem. So there's this amazing company. I, I was in a, a meeting at Intel, very you know, in the during the pandemic. So within the last couple of years. And God, how do I get away from NDA on this one? The <laughs> largest sporting event in the world whose logo is five rings wanted to manage traffic at the event. They, right. they, they still do. Meaning we have this pandemic. We can't let people get too close. We can't let them queue up. We, we have no idea how many people are, are in the surrounding area, let alone the village itself where the athletes are. Mm-hmm. But the problem ultimately, well, there's a number of problems with that. Number one is privacy law. You know, some countries have privacy law that are so strict, you can't just look at people's faces arbitrarily. So it says, well, we'll print it on the ticket that if, you, if you're going to attend this event, you know, it's, it's on the back of the ticket. It, it demnifies, you will be looked at mm -hmm. with cameras. By the way, you know, there's 10 gazillion security cameras at right. this event. So you're getting looked right. at no matter what. But but that's for security, so they can overcome privacy law, especially at an at a, a event of that magnitude. magnitude. But we couldn't for, for a business application like this. So my idea was, can't we just do a top-down algorithm? Can't we just look at the tops of their heads and figure out that, you know, that's a mm -hmm. human? Doesn't seem too hard to recognize, right? Guess where we fell down? Where do you get that data? Right. We went, we churned for months about, okay, we hire a photographer, uh, that doesn't work. We, we gather pictures off the interweb, that doesn't work. That, 
And that's what led me to yeah. this. You know, at this stage of my career, I want to build life-saving applications, save the world type stuff. I, I do not want to build any more applications that help the company that's killing the world with their cheeseburgers. You know what I mean? Um, and I just think the potential is great. So I get excited when I talk about the data. Thing. Yeah. Um, well, and you guys, well, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, we we definitely appreciate the uh, the enthusiasm for sure. And um, absolutely, I mean, data. Uh, there are there are two parts of any AI, right? There there's the algorithm, and then there's the data that that feeds through it. So uh, we're we're working on both. But um, I wanted to to circle back because you've been doing a lot of uh, keynotes on ethics of AI. And I, yeah. I wanted to know what you think the, the most important ethical questions are that AI poses and what you've seen um, the broader community doing to confront those challenges. Well, you know, you hate to speak in general terms, but, you know, the technology elite or the technology people always seem to have this integrity to them. In, in, in my message, you know, it's typically I speak to developers, software developers, and my message is always, you know, we have to be bigger than those business hmm. people. <laughs> if, if you're asked to do something you know is wrong, you need to stand up and say, you know what? that's wrong or, or that's illegal or can't we research this farther to make sure this is cool? Um, but there's bad people in the world. Shoot, look what's going on in the world right now. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting to talk about, especially after a couple beers. <laughs> but I seem to, to, I seem to go towards those you know, the, the, the metaphor I told you earlier about the, you know, the nuclear power, we got the microwave oven, but we also got that terrible, you know, weapon out of it. Well, we got nuclear propulsion ships and stuff like that, which is good. Well, you know, there's a, there's a country that's bombing, you know, Chernobyl right now, for God's sakes. Um, and, and AI has that power. And we, we as technology people are the ones holding the gun. Unfortunately, sometimes we're told who to shoot. And, and without getting too far into human history, you know, we always get into problems when, you know, that the people, the bosses are, are absolved from the guilt because they're making the, the people do the bad stuff. So I personally think that we're good. In terms of AI, we're, you know, overall, it's going to be a 90-10 type thing. You know, 90, we're going to do save the world with 90% of it, and there's going to be a few bad guys, or, or children, frankly, that get their hands on tools that might do some bad things. And so what's a really bad thing, you might ask? Maybe that's your next question. Um, a really bad thing is, um, oh, shoot, I talk about this all the time. What, what's the... What's the term for when you make these fake videos and they look so real? Oh, uh, deep fakes. Thank you. Deep fakes scare the shit out of me, Melody. <laughs> and, and, and if you think it through, that, that's, here's another yin and yang. You know, we've seen some deep fakes that are terrifying of, of real people that look like they're saying terrible things when really it's all made up. 
Um, there's some technology out there I know I personally know of that's been mothballed by the largest software company in the world because it's too dangerous. They just mm. won't put it on the market. It's too dangerous. Yet the last Star Wars movie or or the one before the last one had Carrie Fisher yes. in a deep fake yeah. long after she had passed away. Yeah. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So that's that yin and yang thing. There's a tremendous amount of power that Hollywood could do yeah. to overcome an actress that who's passed away during filming, right? At the same time, oh my God, you hear these stories of, you know, in in your voice, you're calling your grandmother and in synthetically asking her to transfer you money and it's not really her and you're, uh, God, it's just heartbreaking. Some of these, how people, and, and, and it's not naive people right. or not so smart people. You know, smart people get fooled by this, this deep fake stuff. That's, that scares the hell out of me. Yeah, um, and it's only that's not an better. easy one to. F- yeah, so we have to combat that with AI. You you end up combating AI with AI, right? Oh, so it just ends up being in, like encryption. I read this great book years ago um, called uh, the Code Book. It was all about the history of encryption, which is basically just a history of of uh, encrypting and then counter encrypting and further and further and further and further. It's been a a, a you know a sort of under underground war that's been going on uh you know for thousands of years and uh and 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 that happens today and that's why you know the the military has put so much more of their um of their spend on uh on technology that's not you know men on the ground but uh in in counterattacks of of this of this type yeah, yeah, and and uh, so uh, I've I've been studying quantum computing because I have these friends that are experts in it, and uh, two, I've learned two things. Number one, I'm not smart enough to understand it at any level. It's just. But number two, we've got like what is it? Two years before all encryption is rendered impotent. By quantum computing. Hmm. So we have to, I'm reading that in these experts like Pat Hines, I don't know if you know that name, but you should get him on, on this podcast. He's in, he briefs the United States military on this stuff. He's a great guy. I've known him forever. And uh, he's telling me that, well, the way you combat that is with quantum computing. Right. You know, quantum computing is going to break every security measure we have. So you got to combat combat it with better quantum computing. Like okay, and in quantum computing, um, I don't know what your background is, but if it if it's ones and zeros in quantum computing, if you can get your arms around this concept, you can kind of understand it. The ones in quantum computings can be zeros, but they can also be point point five, and they also morph yep. into point twos and stuff. It's like that is so hard for me to get my arms around. I had a I had a conversation with a guest that, about quantum computing and and he had a great analogy that conventional computing has been like a light switch, you know, ones and zeros on ones off. and zeros, yeah. Um and he said that that with quantum it's like a rolly ball. It can literally go in any any direction. And yeah. uh but the physical limitations of quantum computing seem to be the major hindrance at this time. And so I'm surprised that you said in two years, is that what you've heard that that will have um, overcome the physical boundaries by then? No, 
No. If you mean like are quantum computers going to be commoditized, the, the experts, and I'm not right. going to pretend to be one, the experts say, no, that, that that will not be commoditized in two years. Yeah. But will be is the algorithm to do it. Mm. Like so that the hardware won't be in place. Right. Which is kind of backwards of traditional computing, right? right? That the, the hardware usually leads the charge and we follow it in software. So it's the other way around in quantum computing. You know, IBM has a quantum computer and I'm sure Google is working on one and Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft maybe, not that I know of. Um, but yeah, we won't have a, you know, a 12-year-old won't be able to get a quantum computer in his bedroom and wreak <laughs> havoc on the CIA right. in two years. Okay. Ooh. Phew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like to wrap up with this final question, which is future looking. You can take it in any direction that you'd like. Okay. If you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2042, <laughs> so 20 years from now, uh, what does the world look like and have the robots taken over? Wow. You caught me off guard with this one. So <laughs> 20 years from now at my age, Goes like that. You know how your parents, Melody, always said, God, you were a little kid and now you're an adult. Man, it goes quickly. Um, so that's not too far away, 20 right? years. Yep. Uh, in 20 years, we're probably fighting. We still have wars because we, we just, as a humanity, can't figure it out. And, but we'll, there'll probably be video games in space, I'm hoping, in 20 years. In terms of the if software and the compute platform, I would love to say that with all this compute power that we know we are getting, hmm. that on the on the the provider side of healthcare, we'll fix some real problems. Hmm. Like that, there are there are cancers, uh, pancreatic, that they have no idea. It 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 they can't figure it out. It's it's an insta-death scenario. I would think that we, we would tackle that. I would think that we would be a lot far, farther with type 2 diabetes. Type 1 is another tricky one to fix. Mm -hmm. you know, so on the provider side of healthcare, I, I, I would hope that we're dramatically farther, which leads to an ethical discussion of should we do that? Mm. You know, should, li should humans live to 140 years old? Because if you start fixing these things that are inherently wrong in our genetics, right. humans are going to live to the point where their bodies, you'll be alive, but you, know, you won't be able to walk because your knees are broken. So you fix your knees and then it's, a, you know, so there's that. Um, uh, in terms of software, uh, it's going to all be about the, the interface, the user interface and user interaction design, because we have so much compute. Hmm. You know, we, we, I believe we'll, we'll, well, I was that one that said, hey, the touchscreen's awesome. Hey, touchscreens could be every, should be everywhere. And sure enough, they made them commoditized. So all phones and stuff like that. But, you know, haptic interfaces, um, that, that, how do you fix, and I'm not smart enough to even think it through, but how do you fix that problem of the, the making the blind guy see? Hmm. How do you fix that interface problem? I bet, I bet that a combination of organic solutions, meaning surgeries or, or whatever it takes to, to in the optic nerves to intercept them or whatever, mm -hmm. 
and then just playing computer vision and stuff. I, I, I think we could make a lot of people who are currently handicapped hmm. a lot more. God, this is so trite and obvious, but handy capable. Um, I hate that I just said that, but I think we could, like, we really could solve some world problems within twenty years. I believe that. I, I don't. I don't think the 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 death the machines are not going to take over. Hmm. You know that's. <laughs> I doubt we'll see the second coming of Christ in 20 years. Not, not, you know, Revelation, all that biblical apocalypse type stuff, that's not going to happen. Uh, none of the San Diego sports teams will win a World Series. We still <laughs> oh, won't. No. We still won't have a football team. Oh, you know, <laughs> it was so he- hopeful and optimistic, and then it and then it took a turn somewhere. Yeah, yeah. There's 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 the negative side of Tim. Yeah, a loyal San Diego fan. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, every team I you know I was a White Sox fan growing up uh, in Chicago. Wow, impressive. And Comiskey. Uh, yes, and uh, we were nowhere close, and then I think it was 2015 we won the World Series. So I, I feel like it can happen for anybody <laughs> when you when you love well, your team. <laughs> pray for San Diego. I will. I will. Um, yeah. And and listeners, please. <laughs> um, so yeah. uh, let's let's wrap up, Tim, with some calls to action. How can people reach out to you, learn more about you, anything like that? Oh man, I love. Yeah, clearly, I love to talk about this stuff. So, you know, um, although the homepage on my website is totally broken right this particular second because it's my fault, <laughs> because I was confident I could learn WordPress in an hour. Um, uh, Tim You can contact me from Tim at Tim Email address. Um, yeah, I, if you do a search on me. Uh, I'm I'm easy to track down, and and clearly I love to talk about this stuff. So yeah, wonderful. Please do, and we will link to your website in our show notes so people can get a and hold I'll, of you I'll there. Get a smart person to fix it before it, this goes live. Perfect. How about that? <laughs> Perfect. All right, good. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tim. That was uh, so fun. Oh, it's fun. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. We make this program for listeners like you. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars. Every little bit helps spread the word. See you next time.